Hello, welcome back to Adrenaline Realms Thriller Channel. I am your host, Neil Helligers. So glad to see you're back for episode two of Outliers. And before we get into it, just a couple things I want to cover, and you know exactly what's coming. First is behind you, look out. Next is a word from our sponsor. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. Each Monday, I bring you a brand new full-length episode covering something from a wide variety of topics. And then every Friday, come meet up with me again for a mini What's in the News episode so you can stay up to date on everything that's going on in the world. Check out Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And Ray John. Yes, Adrenaline, where even the host's contributions are maybe like a tiny bit thrilling, maybe like a little bit thrilling. Anyway, um, before we get into episode two of Outliers and see what's going on with Boyanda, um, I just want to talk for a little bit about our writer, C.J. Wells, who has a very varied writing career from fiction to true crime to journalism and most shockingly and most thrillingly interactive children's books. And, you know, I'm not even joking about that, actually. That's completely serious. If you have kids or know people who have kids, I mean, the stakes every single day are impossibly high. And that, my friend, is thrilling. So the only place you can go from there is a story about the apocalypse. Am I right? So let's get back to it. Let's see if the outliers can use the phone. Anyway, here's episode two. Enjoy. The outliers have opposable thumbs. Their silhouette is humanoid, upright, two arms and two legs, ape-like hands and feet with stumpy fingers and toes, a thick, boxy torso, a skin-like membrane stretched atop their exoskeleton that is the same pale lavender of the romanticized corpse of a young girl in a Victorian-era novel or an Elizabethan play. No nose or ears to speak of, just two slits for nostrils, a wide slit for a mouth, and gill-like flaps for ears, as bald as an egg. No fingernails or toenails, no genitalia, no gender markers or characteristics, as sexless as the plastic dolls children once played with. Don doesn't believe they reproduce. He doesn't think they're hermaphrodites either. More like a single generation of short-lived genetic mutants with a humanoid shape who stand upright like we do, 
with two arms and two legs. That's the part that always gets to me. How easy it is to mistake them for humans when they're silhouetted against the horizon in the twilight or at dawn or silhouetted against the backdrop of a campfire. They're it's, Da has to remind me sometimes. Not he's or she's. Outliers. It suits. I've never seen an outlier child. All the outliers are the size of medium-sized adult humans, which means shorter than Da, who's very tall, and as alike as the terracotta warriors I saw in a picture book about ancient China. Distinctive, but, at first glance anyway, pretty much indistinct from each other. The outliers are ectothermic, or cold-blooded, not warm-blooded endothermic mammals like Da and me. Their lizard brain is dominant. They can't read. They can't feel anything. Except for pain and hunger and cold. Ectothermic creatures can't manufacture warmth like mammals can. They have no internal combustion engine that heats up their blood and muscle tissue. They need the sun to enliven them, to get their fluids flowing, to stay alive. Which is why Don and me live in the far north, in the mountains, where the air is thin and the snow covers the ground much of the year, where thick gray clouds scrape the treetops three seasons out of four. Without the warmth of sunlight, the outliers are sluggish and docile, easy to kill. I'm a bow hunter. Robin Hood from the old stories has nothing on me. If I had to, I could put an arrow through the heart of an outlier before I could catch a whiff of my scent in the breeze, but I've only ever killed one, at least intentionally. It's their silhouette that stops me from shooting at them like tin cans on a log, that naked silhouette that's upright, two arms and two legs, humanoid, like me. Don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to killing. I hunt rabbits and deer for food, squirrels sometimes, and elk, for Da and me. Nose to tail, nothing I hunt is wasted. Every ounce of meat is consumed. Bones are ground down to powder to bulk up the grains and gristle for the dogs. Skins are stretched and dried and used to patch or remake the clothes we have. The outliers aren't consumable, and they bite. They're carnivorous. I know this fact from observation. I once saw one crouch in the woods, eating the steaming innards of a dead deer that had been taken down by a pack of wolves. Blood dripped down its chin and spattered on its bare knees. Eyes like polished, wet obsidian. No white sclera. Like the crazed zombies featured in a comic book I found in the attic of an abandoned farmhouse. The wolves came back and killed the outlier in turn. Tore it to pieces. And then the wolves died, foaming at the mouth besieged by a madness that caused them to chew off their tails and even their paws. Lisa, Da explained. Rabies. A virus. Worse even than bacteria. No, the outliers are not prey. Dead, they are toxic waste. Alive, they are a threat to our existence. Da has killed many outliers. Hundreds, maybe. Thousands, possibly. Not just by electrocuting them, either. He shoots them with his rifle sometimes with one of the handguns. When I was small, I almost got used to the concussive sound of gunfire near the perimeter fence, the echoes of shots reverberating through the woods. Sometimes he'd carry his rocking chair outside and sit all night next to the campfire he'd set ablaze to attract them. The outliers are instinctively attracted to fire, for the warmth, I expect, maybe to the light. And I've seen them walk straight into a burning fire, arms straight out like Frankenstein's monster, only to go up in flames with a crinkly pop like that of a burning grasshopper. Da told me he shot them because he wanted to reduce their population and the threat they posed. I'd believed him, 
but one evening I found him sitting out in his rocking chair by the perimeter fence, campfire blazing, drinking from a bottle of whiskey he'd found. The only time I'd ever seen him drunk and slurring his words. He'd been firing at the outliers who emerged from the trees. Target practice, he told me, and laughed. Hell of a good time I'm having, boy. I took this for an aberration. He'd always been respectful of living things, tolerant of nature, kind to me and to the dogs. He never acknowledged what he'd said that evening. I never did either. I never saw him drunk again. The day finally came when Dodd decided it would be prudent to save on ammunition. Our supply of gunpowder is finite, he pointed out. From then on, he didn't shoot the outliers unless we came upon them outside the compound, where they were an imminent threat. The day I killed an outlier was very cold. Late winter, the knife edge of spring, when it's safe to venture north into the beyond without risking being trapped outdoors in a sudden winter squall. We'd come upon the ruins of an old farmhouse that we'd scavenged before, but this time, Dodd discovered an underground storm shelter half buried under some derelict farm machinery. Storm shelters, we knew from experience, were often used to store supplies. Some were veritable treasure troves. Whenever we came across one, we never left it unexplored. The metal door had jammed, and he was using a crowbar to try to pry it open, concentrating, grunting with effort. He'd left his rifle leaning against the farmhouse porch, I was about 50 yards away, using a stick to poke around in the ashes of a barn that had burned to the ground, daydreaming like a dumb kid, musing. Did the barn burn when someone with an oil lamp accidentally brushed up against dry straw? Or did the owner of the property consider the tilting structure a hazard and burn it down himself? Maybe the lightning rod on the roof had failed, and the barn had been struck by a bolt of lightning that had incinerated the place in seconds. Then I glanced up, loping, that's the right word. The outliers usually sway-walked or trundled awkwardly, but this one had a long, loping stride, more like a wolf. It was heading through the knee-high snow toward Da, saliva bubbling between its lips like foam, stark naked lavender skin against the luminous white snow. That's what I never got used to. All winter animals have a coat of fur or feathers, all but the outliers. I didn't understand how it could move so fast in the cold. Maybe it had just crawled out from the cocoon of a warm den when it scented prey in the vicinity. I didn't know. I just knew it would reach Da before he could get to his rifle, even if he saw it coming, and he didn't. Instinct kicked in. I notched an arrow in my bow and pulled back the bowstring. Bow hunting is all about an arrow's trajectory, velocity, and kinetic energy. My best range is 40 yards with a 4-inch circle target, but Da was closer to 50 yards away. My recurve bow could launch an arrow 225 feet per second or 150 miles per hour. The faster an arrow travels, the flatter the flight trajectory and less deviation from wind. There was almost no wind, but it was cold. The revised calculations whizzed through my brain. A 48-pound draw force at 28 inches would launch the arrow at approximately 140 feet per second. Slower than optimum, but good enough. If I could hit the target at 50 yards. The outlier's lope turned into a staggering charge. I didn't even have time to cry out a warning. I steadied myself held my breath, closed one eye, took aim, and let the arrow fly. It struck the outlier mid-stride, missed its spinal column by a quarter inch and punched through its exoskeleton, ripped through its back muscles, penetrated its heart and seemed to lift it up off the ground before it fell to a heap, burgundy red blood still pumping, spraying gory cartwheels in the snow. Dahl whirled around as the outlier thudded to the ground. He stumbled backwards, surprised and shaken, grabbing for his rifle, but the threat was neutralized. The outlier was dead. Da stared down at my arrow with the familiar fletching jutting from the outlier's back before he looked up at me. 
a quick nod of acknowledgement, of thanks. I didn't go any closer. I didn't want to look at what I killed. I know what they look like. Two arms and two legs. Humanoid. Like me. I don't regret what I did, but I don't like to think about it either. I always eat what I kill. I never waste what I hunt. I make full use of meat, tissue, skin, and bone. Nose to tail. Except for that one time. We just walked away, leaving the dead outlier lying on the ground like a fading lilac in the snow. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. During Women's History Month, come explore what feminism means to you with nonfiction storytelling podcast, Thread the Needle. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Daw says one day he will tell me the outlier's origin story. Their story is not in any of our books because books were published during the before. Dodd told me that around the time of the change, books weren't all printed and bound, but words appeared magically on tablet screens. Digital content, it was called. The same for newspapers and magazines. Instead of on paper, information was stored in clouds, which doesn't make sense to me. But Da insists that this is true. I've collected a small pile of these tablets and smartphones and laptop computers, but they're all as dead as the wall sockets. Blank. All the words written about the change, as it was happening, have been lost. But Da remembers. And one day he promised he'll tell me a blow-by-blow account of what occurred. But that day hasn't come yet. Da says someday soon. I don't know exactly how old I am. I've grown from the height of Da's kneecap to the height of his bearded chin, but he says I won't technically be a man until I grow whiskers. Or at least stubble. My cheeks are still smooth, but I feel strong, like a man. My biceps swell from chopping wood. The veins in my forearms stand out in relief against my pale skin. The muscles across my abdomen ripple from doing heavy chores. 
The changes are gradual, but the realization has been sudden. I take off my trousers to bathe in the metal tub, and I don't recognize myself. My legs don't look like the legs of the boy I still think I am. There's an old riddle question. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? The answer apparently reveals the philosophical perspective of the person who gives it more than anything else. Sometimes when I hear the crashing of a dead tree whose hollow trunk has finally split wide open, I think about that riddle question. It made a sound because I heard it, but if I wasn't nearby, surely it would still make a sound. The birds and the wildlife in the forest would most certainly hear it. So would the outliers. Lately, I've been applying that concept to myself. If I become a man and there's no one around to see what I've become, am I a man? In a lot of the old books I've read, a man is defined by when he's old enough to go to war or to mate. Wars are cataclysmic events chronicled in history. History is in the past. Any threat of war is long gone. I will never be a soldier. And as Da and I are alone in the world, I will never find a mate. I try not to think about that. I've begun avoiding certain books, like those by D.H. Lawrence, that stir up longings I don't want to face. My shins ache at night. Growing pains, Da says. But each morning when I wake up and rub my fingers across my jaw, no whiskers. Not yet. But soon. Da doesn't talk much anymore. His quietude has come about so gradually that I didn't realize we weren't speaking much, if at all. For years and years, Da spoke all the time intently trying to impart his wealth of knowledge to the small child in his care. He told me the names of all the trees in the forest, the plants on the hillside, what was edible, what was not, what was medicinal, and what was poisonous. He pointed out every star and every constellation. He showed me how to use tools and how to take apart motors and engines. He taught me how to hunt, to fish, to trap, and how to cook what we brought home. He taught me how to preserve meat and how to can fruits and vegetables we grew in our greenhouse garden. I learned to apply salve to open wounds to stave off infection, and how to sew up cuts and gashes on the livestock or myself. I can sew and mend, cook and repair just about anything. Most of all, he taught me to survive in the realm of the outliers. Da is not young, but he's been hardy my whole life, as thick and sturdy as an oak. I observed him putting on his shirt the other day. His ribcage is now as visible as the bleached bones of a skeleton under a thin blanket of fall leaves and the skin across his cheekbones resembles yellowed parchment. He doesn't stand up straight anymore. His shoulders have rounded and he bends forward a bit, from the waist. Every once in a while he winces in pain, though he tries to hide it. Da will be 78 next summer solstice. That's three years more than the average lifespan of a human being. Are you dying, Da? I ask him. We're both dressed for the cold, standing on the cabin's porch, watching the blinding yellow rays of the morning sun rip through the low clouds. He doesn't look at me when he speaks. We're dying from the moment we're born, boy. You know that. I've never told you otherwise. It's the human condition. The cost of our original sin. That's the most he's said in weeks, and I can see what it cost him. The pain he's been trying to fend off in his chest, maybe in his lungs. He sits down abruptly on the top step. He gasps as he speaks. Why don't you go on ahead? I'll be along after I catch my breath. I know he won't be coming, but I don't say so. I just trot off toward the gate. When I get into the beyond, out of sight of the fence, I start to run as fast as I can, crashing through the frozen brush, not caring that my overflowing tears quickly turn to streaks of ice on my cheeks. I fear for Da. 
I also fear being completely alone. One hundred yards beyond the perimeter of our compound, I make the conscious decision not to think about the future. For now, at least. To try to stay in the moment. To remain vigilant while out in the beyond. Alert to my surroundings. Just like history is long over, the future is only theoretical. Neither exists in real time. I take a deep breath, filling my healthy young lungs with fresh air so cold it burns, and I jog at a steady pace, a pace I can maintain for hours and hours, trying to outrun the fears ricocheting around in my head, fears which are surely pursuing me as zealously as starving outliers in balmy weather. That's all I can do. So now we know more about the outliers, what they're like, what their hobbies are, uh, mostly attacking and killing humans, of course. Um, and we also know that they, they don't speak. So um, most likely, you know, you, you'll never talk to one on the phone, um, maybe FaceTime or something. But, you know, it's, it's a tough call that boy apparently had to make. I mean, of course, he was going to protect Don no matter how he could. But um, maybe that outlier could have been his first best friend. I, I think we're probably in agreement that boy really needs some friends. So let's see what happens from here on out with episode three of Outliers next time around. I will be here. You will be here. Boy will definitely be here. It does not go in anywhere. So I will see you next time. Take care. You're listening to Adrenaline Outliers, narrated by Rory Culkin, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast that's breaking barriers. This is Reppin. It's where we do a deep dive into subjects like belonging, to mental health, to courage, and more. On Reppin, you'll meet the faces you think you know and discover their untold stories. It's real, it's intimate, and it gives you insight into the real person behind the images. In a world of pretense, Reppin strips it all down. No filters, no facades. Learn and be empowered and find inspiration through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Reppin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. Outliers is executive produced by Dave Beasley and narrated by Rory Culkin. Created by Cassandra Wells and Dave Beasley. Based on the novella Outliers by Cassandra Wells. Produced for Realm by Alexis Latshaw and Haley Wagreich. Additional sound design and editing by Rory O'Shea. Cover art by Kindle Thomas and Michał Krasnopolski. Adrenaline is produced by Mary Osadolahi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Neil Helligers. Audio editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Marcus Begala. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Adrenaline by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.